Welcome to Doing Sustainability, a podcast that features practical and actionable approaches to sustainability, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we have enlightened conversations with corporate and business leaders on the vision, motivation, actions, and impacts of sustainability. We discuss best practices, fresh perspectives, tips, and solutions to help a company demonstrate its ESG commitment and position themselves for long-term success. Hi, I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's start the show. Today, we're speaking with Laura Asiala. Laura is the Chief Sustainability Officer at WholeWorks LLC. If you don't know who WholeWorks is, WholeWorks has built lasting partnerships with companies like Nike, Starwood, Dow Corning, and Wendy's over two decades. They help clients stay ahead of challenge and discover new ways of doing business by cultivating business acumen, strategic agility, sustainability thinking, and leadership skills on a strategic and individual level. Man, that is a mouthful. So we're going to, so, so we're going to unpack that here. Before this role, she worked as a lead facilitator for leading the Sustainability Transformation Professional Certificate Program. And you're also the Senior Director, Business Engagement, and Editor of the Great Lakes Economic Forum for the Council of the Great Lakes Region. So I actually started my international business career at the Dow Corning Corporation, which is now part of Dow Incorporated. And I spent 30 years there working in a number of different capabilities. And it's really where I would say I cut my teeth on sustainability. Uh, The Dow organization has been a very dedicated student and practitioner of sustainability for a long time. Dow, in fact, is on its third set of 10-year sustainability goals, which, you know, is pretty impressive. Yes, I think. And I retired from Dow Corning about 10 years ago as the director of corporate communications and corporate citizenship. And I transitioned from there to work for a company called Pixera Global, which is an international nonprofit that focuses on sustainable international development. And in that particular role, what I focused on was helping large multinational companies make an impact on the ground in underserved communities around the world. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for several years for Pixera Global and then moved from there when I returned to the state of Michigan, which is my hometown. And that's where I worked for the Council of the Great Lakes Region and established the journal online and wrote there. And then from there, transitioned to Whole Works. I've actually been affiliated with Whole Works for a long time because My partner and CEO of Whole Works, Matt Mayberry, is someone that I worked with as a client when I was at Dow Corning and he was at Whole Works. So Whole Works has been around for 25 years. And our practice in Whole Works is really about enabling companies and individuals to see the systems in which they are working in order to effectively change those systems or intervene in ways. And of course, sustainability is a huge, huge, overarching mega system. And about five years ago, we started then professional certification online programs to enable experienced 
people. And when I say experienced people, I don't mean experienced in sustainability because none of us are experienced in sustainability. We're all beginners. We're all pioneers. Right. Somebody who tells you that they've got this nail is either lying yeah. or <laughs> yeah, especially scope three. <laughs> exactly. But we have a lot of people who are experienced professionals and functional experts and in their areas of experience and leadership and areas of responsibility. We wanted to be able to help those people integrate sustainability into the work for which they're already re held responsible. Yeah. That's been most of my work in the last five I'm years. I'm going to ask you some, some, some questions about that. Sure. But I want to start with... How did you get here? Was it just part of your professional journey or was it something else? Well, it's always a combination, right? So my journey in sustainability started with the fact that I worked in a Dow organization and even... 30 years ago, they started sets of sustainability goals, but you know, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years ago, Dow and a lot of large companies in the United States, the automotive industry is the same way, really undertook the opportunity to develop communities in a sustainable way. So 50 years ago, Dow was instrumental in starting Delta Community College, which educates their tradespeople and really started a university or, or was part of the private sector that really was behind a university in mid-Michigan now called Saginaw Valley State University and worked in the community to help develop a community that had a great school system, had great health system. And why? Because you can't be a great place to work if you live in a crappy community. I want to emphasize this because that kind of leadership it doesn't arise overnight. So I came into the Dow Corning community. I mean, like, sorry, I'm, I just want to tell you guys, I was the last kindergarten class recruited, but really it was 40 years ago that I was recruited for Dow Corning and came to work in the Dow organization. And so I came into an environment that was very competitive, global and on a global stage for doing great business and developing great products, but also always had a heart, I would say, for both social and environmental sustainability. But it wasn't really talked about the same way, integrating it in the same way that it is now. But you asked me about this in about 33 years ago more or less 30, well, a little over 30 years ago, there was also came along the establishment of Habitat for Humanity in the state of Michigan. Now, I don't know how much you all know about Habitat for Humanity, but Habitat for Humanity is a 501c3 charitable nonprofit organization. But if it were formed today, it would be a social enterprise. Why? Because they use the principles of business there. They don't build houses and give them away. They work with families in need to build houses in community, and then they sell those houses at no profit to the folks that buy them. Well, that was the first time, and it just like, I, re I can still remember hearing about Habitat for Humanity for the first time and going, 
Well, that just makes so much sense. That yeah. was using principles of business and principles of capital to alleviate poverty. And I, I mean, literally, I had had been an econ undergrad. That just totally rocked my world because before that, it was bifurcated. You either worked and made money, and if you were a good person, then you gave money philanthropically to poor people who didn't have money. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, I saw how those two things could come together and kind of went, wait. Could we do this more broadly? (laughs) So I chaired the Habitat for Humanity chapter in the county that I lived in, in Bay City, Michigan. So it's Bay County, Michigan. But one of the things that I really had a helping hand with was that Dow at that time was also becoming a sponsor of Habitat for Humanity International. So they helped to underwrite the initial investment for not only Bay County Habitat for Humanity, but that was a pretty good sized company in that tri-county area in Michigan, which is Midland Bay and Saginaw. And they actually helped to get all three of those. More importantly, what my boss did, Brian Chermside at Dow, recognizing that leading the establishment of a nonprofit organization was a tremendous leadership development opportunity. He gave me, I think, 120 hours in the first year that we formed that so that I could use that as my development time. And he counted that towards part of my leadership development plan at Dow Corning, which was kind of cool, right? So there was a real vote for pro bono service. I don't want to say they excused me from my day job. No, they did not. But they gave me the um, they gave me the space and time and was part of the initial funding to help get that organization off the ground. And I would say that that was probably a real turning point in my mind with regards to not only my leadership development capability, but also a way to radically re-see how business could be used to eliminate poverty and injustice in the world. Yeah. Before it's time. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to talk about whole works here. You say profit or planet, question mark, people are profit, question mark. These questions need to be retired through truly sustainable solutions that consider ecosystems, economy, and equity. I am against the false dichotomy. You don't have to choose. If you are creative and you are innovative and you are willing to work at systems and you are willing to work with people who come from a diversity of backgrounds and perspectives, there is ample opportunity for innovation and insight and creativity, and we can create thriving communities. Well, give it 50 years, we won't have a choice. (laughs) Well, I mean, give it five years, we won't have a choice. I mean, and and in fact, the choices are, are decreasing at every moment. You know, one of the things that... We create the filters and the way we look at things, and then we think those things are reality, right? To me, business rules are the first thing. Like, who made that up? Right. (laughs) It's like, we did. Which, you know, we, so human beings didn't set the systems of nature. And honestly, human beings don't really even set the rules of social engagement because we are human beings and we are wired in certain ways. You know, we, we get DNA. But how we define revenue and expenses and profit and capital is completely man-made. It's 
or human made. And we can change that anytime we want to. And in fact, now we are. And that's helping us to see things differently. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about helping companies stay ahead of the curve mm-hmm. and discover new ways of doing business. I mean, that's a pretty big claim, right? That's a pretty big promise. You talk about cultivating business acumen, strategic agility, sustainability thinking, and leadership skills on a strategic and individual basis. Tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how you make that happen. So there's a couple of ways that we do this, right? So one of the things that we know is, so, and let me take a step back to remind you that I don't work with children. I don't work with teens. I don't work with undergraduates. And the last time I was at graduate school was to give a talk. I work with adults and I work with adults who are busy and productive and already have a ton of things that they've got to get done, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we develop in Whole Works is an adult-centered professional development program in which we encapsulate key learnings into five to 15-minute pieces. We string those together in generally in online modules. We can do in-person workshops, but honestly, self-driven learning, especially with the global pandemic, is something that most adults are ready for now, right? Mm-hmm. And and so we put those things together. We ask people what they think. We ask them to respond to us. We ask them for their insights. But again, those are strung together in five to 15 minute things. Why? Because we want people to be able to sit down. I don't know if either one of you do Wordle. You know, I do Wordle in the morning. It's five minutes. We want somebody to actually do something and be able to do something of value and gain an insight in five minutes. Now, this isn't, it's not one thing that you do in five minutes. Remember, I'm stringing those things together. (laughs) Okay, so it's not just five minutes. This is actually hard work. Then we also do at Whole Works is we develop simulations, which allow people to practice their decision-making, right? And the reason that we do that is because it is so easy to sit there and listen to somebody tell you a story and nod sagely and go, well, yes, of course. (laughs) I would do not choose that. A completely different situation when you're on the other side of the table and you've actually got to take and make a decision. We're in the sixth week of our strategic ESG program. We've just finished last week, the CareCo Natural Simulation, which is a fictional simulation that we run for learning purposes. We have developed that and every team we've run now, I wanna say, I think this time we had five teams. I think we had five teams run that simulation. Every team starts with exactly the same set of resources and decisions to be made. And we had one team that finished with more than a billion dollars in sales and $150 million worth of earned value. And we had one team that was about $850 million and barely managed to squeak in economic value of about $20 million. Okay. And it was a 10-year simulation that we ran over five weeks. 
But what happens there is that people have to make decisions and very similar kinds of decisions. What kind of market strategy are you going to put in place? How are you going to support your market strategy? What kind of uh, manufacturing and operation strategies are you going to put in place? What kind of capital are you going to choose? What kind of strategies are you going to put in terms of sustainability? In this particular case, had also um, an agricultural supply chain. So you have a living supply chain as well as an inorganic supply chain. If you put all of that together and it sounds overwhelming, but guess what? That's what businesses have to deal with. So we run people through that. We also, in our practice, develop simulations that are specific to companies that do that too. So we've got companies who will ask us to help them envision what it is that they could be making changes in. And we we help them develop those strategies or we take those strategies. And sometimes we've had a client call us as um, the physicist of business, that we, we help them figure out the physics. Where are the levers that they need to crank hardest on? What's the angle here? How can we make this come in? And, and via simulation and creating scenarios, we actually provide a way to reflect back quickly to clients what it is that their business, given their assumptions, will turn out. And we're very good at that, to be candid. And then the last thing that we do is that we work with people to develop then specific projects or specific strategies, and we coach them on the development of those strategies and projects. And so we do that as small an increment as a single person working on a single project, a team working on a group project, a company or an organization working on an organizational strategy. So for us, the approach is pretty much the same in terms of coaching, but the, the size and scale can be very different. Well, it's so interesting because you're really working, putting sustainability in line and at core with the, the business strategy. Exactly what we're doing. And it's interesting is in our learning simulations, and we have two, we call one Rio Negro Bioproducts, sorry, and Careco Natural. So we have two, one is a six-week simulation, one is a 10-week simulation. And in both cases, those are fictional cases, those are fictional simulations. They're based on reality, but they are fiction. We do not have a vice president of sustainability. We do not. Why? Because every role has sustainability into it. I'm not saying, you know, I'm the chief sustainability officer at Whole Works. I'm not trying to do away with sustainability departments, but no organization, none, not even, not big companies, not small companies can afford to have duplicative services. You cannot have a supply chain and a sustainable supply chain. You cannot have marketing and sustainable marketing or irresponsible marketing. And of course, Every time I think about that, every time I think about, you know, modifying things like supply chain with sustainable or marketing with responsible, I think, well, does that mean your the other side is unsustainable or irresponsible? <laughs> well, it, it, it's just internalizing for every department, every role, you know, understanding how the business has to evolve to survive. I'll give you an example of one of the great, I mean, it's so much fun to work with. I mean, because I work with the people who come and take our programs are just wicked smart, right? And and they come from all over the world. In, in the last five years, as I mentioned, we have more than 350 alumni 
they come from 35 countries and 40% of them speak English as a second language. So we teach in English, nearly half of folks who have come to us speak English as a second language. So I won't disclose the name of the company, but I'll just say that we have someone who's working in research and development and working on developing a specific technology to replace an unsustainable product formulation with a sustainable product formulation. So that's all cool. And one of the things that we have our participants do is actually draw a map of resources and capabilities, key processes, and how those work together to drive the competitive advantage in the marketplace and then drive sustainable value, whether that's revenue, increasing revenue, decreasing costs, reducing risk, or optimizing capital. And while he was drawing that map, he said to me, I realized I had included marketing and sales. I had included, he's research and development. I had included product development, but I realized that I don't have anybody from supply chain. And if I don't get somebody from supply chain, we won't be able to deliver this. And I was like, my work here is done. Because, you know, and so now this leader, and he is an experienced leader, is going out to find someone. And that's an insight that he came away from with our program because of the simulation that we ran. Mm -hmm. Terrific. New topic, ESG or integrating ESG. Well, one of the things that's sort of interesting about this is that I've been, although I, you know, I started working for the Dow Corning Corporation 40 years ago. And I retired 10 years ago. It's really only been in the last 20 years, right, that we've talked about different ways of sustainability, even though we had a history of social development and a history of environmental interest and concern long before that. But I've been in this space long enough to see terms go in and out of vogue. And the the fact that terminology goes in and out of vogue, I find really frustrating. And it's mostly frustrating because I have worked for 40 years with people who have English as a second language. And every time we get bored with an English word and we start substituting something else in it, we kind of leave people behind. So let me talk about ESG or environmental, social, and governance. And I will just say that kind of terminology actually goes back to 1987, right? It's the Brundtland Commission, right? So the Brundtland Commission was the first definition of sustainability, and it's still a great definition of sustainability. It says the ability of people today to meet their needs without compromising the needs of future generations to meet their needs. And it talked about economic growth, and it talked about environmental protection, and it talked about social equality. That's the triple bottom line. Later, the United Nations also brought in the notion of governance, which is how is it that a company makes decisions, governs its capital, and polices itself so that that's part of it. But really, these things, the thing that I think has thrown us all off is honestly the grabbing of that terminology and applying it to buckets of securities and giving them assessments, right? And so somebody, different boards, different companies are assessing companies on their environmental, social, and governance factors. And then we look at those derivative judgments and we equate that with ESG and sustainability. And clearly, 
that is not it. It's not about the derivatives. Sustainability is when companies pay attention to their material, environmental, social, and governance issues. And if you are an investor looking at a company, you want to know that the company that you've invested in are attending to the material issues of that company that are going to impact their financial sustainability. To me, that's impact investing in a nutshell. And all the derivative stuff is, you know, at one point was insightful. Now, sometimes I look at it and go, really annoying. But it is really, really critical. You open this by talking about the doing, right? This Mm -hmm. is about the doing, not the judging, not the Mm -hmm. assessing, the doing. Are you attending to the material issues that impact your financial sustainability as an organization? And by the way, they are environmental and they are social and they are governance. And you will have people then attack you and me and go, it's not enough. And it's not, it's not enough. But we have to start. For everyone who says, Laura, you didn't define double materiality. I'm going to say, yeah, 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 I know. But let's not drown people in this. If every company in the world attended to one, just one material, environmental, social, or governance issue and did something about it, Gary, I love this, doing, did something about it and did something about it systematically and did something about it um, consistently and got, you know, as you said, integrated, we would live in a more just and sustainable world. I used to ask a question to guest uh, because we work with a lot of people that are relatively newcomers to sustainability. What's the one piece of advice that we give them? And they said, just do one or two things that are really material to your business. Don't, my words, don't try to boil the ocean. So I love how passionate you are. This is beautiful. I've got another topic here of yours. Well, I want to build on that one thing, though, that you've said, because I think it's so important. And it's it's one of the pieces of, of advice that the former CSO of Dow, who is also an advisor to Whole Works, Dr. Neil Hawkins, tells our alumni all the time, which is every time you do one thing well, and demonstrate a return, you earn the right to do the next bigger thing well. So pick the thing that's important. Don't pick something that's incidental. Pick something that's important and then make one step and and do it well. Which we see so often because, you know, we design and produce and write ESG reports. And too often these companies are so caught up in just checking the box of the frameworks. And it's like the essence of it all is really the transparency and the accountability. People say, you know, what? what's the thing that really excites you right now and gives you hope? And one of the things that really excites me is that now finally there is the coming together, uh, the convergence of reporting and frameworks. And I just, I have to tell you, I mean, I look at the people who lead the GRI or have led the GRI, um, Timon and and I, he's the former CEO of GRI, um, served together on at Net Impact for several years. I have such admiration for his leadership and his successor's leadership. I have such admiration for the people who worked on the task force for climate-related 
updated financial disclosures, TCFD. Those people are like pioneers. I mean, there were people that were passing them in their corridors and their organizations, rolling their eyes at these folks, and they just persevered. And the thing that I thought was so miraculous was when SASB and integrated reporting and the CDP reporting standards all came together in the IFRS and are forming the International Sustainability Standards Board. Are you kidding me? This is like that level of collaboration is nothing short of miraculous. It, it's miraculous than the, the arrangement that they have with GRI. So all of those things are just super cool. And the thing that's not super cool is when people go, oh, okay, well, check, 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 but they're not doing anything. Yep. Reporting is like you, you're going to report and then people are going to expect to see an improvement. So while reporting is essential, it's certainly not enough. But what are you going to do now that you understand what your baseline is? What's your improvement going to be? Both. <laughs> Absolutely. It's hard because that third party audit costs money. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they barely can do the budgets for reporting sustainability, you know, as it comes to be more regulated in the United States. So, you know, it's it's just a big struggle. It is a big struggle, but I'll tell you what, I've worked in large organizations and nobody seems to have any trouble finding the necessary money to make financial reports. Yep, I know. I mean, seriously, when I see people complain about what it's going to take to report on sustainability, I go, wow, it's actually kind of a bargain if you compare what you have over here reporting on financial. And I have a theory here that eventually your your CFO becomes a chief reporting officer. Yes. Because those are the things that you have to integrate to. You don't keep a financial reporting ledger for reporting, you know, logistics and supply chain and materials, and then have a completely disparate. It's the whole enterprise resource management systems are going to get remade and they need to be reviewable. They need to be auditable. Right. Again, you don't need two systems to do that. You just need one. Most companies already have one. It's the chief financial officer. Correct. And today you must consider the tangible and intangible qualities to be able to evaluate the potential value of a company moving forward. So uh, we've always felt that. And it's been a little bit because people are still checking boxes you know, there's a little bit of a resistance of going down the integrated report side, although it's happening more frequently and it's starting to build momentum. But our background is in annual reports. We started our business doing annual reports. That's awesome. I don't know if you've had the same experience I have, but I'll tell you in organizations where the CSO and the CFO become BFFs, things happen. Yeah. That's when things I like that. I like that. that, That's great. I like that. Something that I think you're very passionate about, the uh, Council of the Great Lakes Region is a leader in bringing government, business, academic, and NGO leaders together as one across borders and sectors to address the most pressing social, economic, and environmental issues facing North America Great Lakes region in order to create the first sustainable region in the world. Okay, so 
I'm not going to speak for the Council of the Great Lakes Region because I am no longer one of their employees, but I'm a big fan. But I will tell you something. Now, tell me where you all are located, because I don't think I knew that. La La Land. (laughs) San Bonifacio, California. (laughs) Okay, so you all are in California. Okay, so if you look across that map, the United States, you'll you'll see the Great Lakes region in Michigan is Mm -hmm. pretty much in the center, right? So the, the mitten of Michigan has three of the Great Lakes surrounding it. That's what makes the mitten. But what you might not know is that there are five Great Lakes. And the regions that surround those, the geopolitical regions that surround them are eight U.S. states and two Canadian provinces. So you go Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York. Wow. And then the Canadian provinces of Quebec and Ontario. You take those 10 states and Canadian provinces and you add them together and you pretend that they are a country. They are the third largest economy in the world. Wow. They hold more than 85% of the fresh groundwater in North America. They hold more than 20% of the fresh groundwater in the world. Wow. That's huge. You don't realize that. Yeah, most people don't realize that. And so if you look at it from an economic, social, out of those states, you've got Milwaukee and Chicago and Detroit, Toledo, Cleveland, New York City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Minneapolis, right? I mean, look at those huge, I don't have to spell out the social issues and opportunities that extend there, but all of that is all then surrounded by one of the largest, if not the largest freshwater system in the world. So we have a huge responsibility for stewardship in this region of the world, socially, economically, and environmentally. And that's what the Council of the Great Lakes region works hard to help people understand. And by the way, there are lots of Great Lakes organizations. There are marvelous nonprofit organizations that are dedicated, especially to environmental issues around the Great Lakes region. But what the Council of the Great Lakes region is really trying to do is how do you bring in the environmental, the social, and the economic issues and bring those together in terms of a sustainable region. It's a great organization. Love it. Still a big big supporter, still a big fan. Yeah, love it, love it, love it. Kind of wrap up here a little bit, Laura. So we're five years out from today, and we're doing this again. Okay. What will we be talking about? I think that one of the things that we'll be talking about is just, I'm kind of thinking about breaking this down. So, so let me say from a reporting standpoint, right. One of the things that came together this year was the international sustainability standards board, which, you know, most people don't understand that the international sustainability standards board is not its own standalone organization. It is part of the IFRS Foundation, which is also the organization that sets the standards for financials, right? So I talked a little bit about how I see reporting is coming together, and that is coming together in the IFRS. But the International Sustainability Standards Board's developed two standards this year. One was 
a what I would characterize as more general, and it basically said you have to report on material ESG. And the second one, it was all about climate-related risks and opportunities. I think that five years from now, you are also going to see at a bare minimum, not only climate change, but also around biodiversity, because that's coming, and water. Okay, so I think those three things come together in really, really significant ways. Other thing that the ISSB does, so the International Sustainability Standards Board, though, they're not a government agency, right? They're an association, essentially. They're a bunch of people who get together and say, this makes really good sense. Well, the thing that I really applaud is IASCO, which is the International Organization of Securities and Exchange Commissions, endorsed those immediately. Again, I just want to say, this is some pretty fantastic leadership going on. I mean, think about all the things in the world that we don't agree on. And those people like got it together really fast. That means now you have government entities considering those rules and how they're going to put those into play. Brazil has already done something. I know European Union is actually ahead of the ISSB. The European Union has outmatched where the ISSB Securities and Exchange Commission lagging a little bit. But, you know, what I'm saying, though, is in five years, there's going to be a big step up and you're going to see different legislations and different regulatory authorities adopt those and start requiring those. Okay, so that's one thing. Five years from now, the European Union's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which is now law, will be fully implemented. So it's starting to be implemented in 2024, and it's going to be implemented over four years. Now, I don't know about you all, but I will tell you that Whole Works, and we are a small but mighty specialty company, we are governed by the European GDPR, which is the Privacy Act, right? And I'm going to bet that you all have to pay attention to that too. Guys, I'm going to bet that almost everybody on this call has to pay attention to that because if you are interacting with somebody in the European Union, they are protected by privacy. Okay. And so what happened is that multinational companies who do business in Europe can't afford two sets of policies around privacy. So what do they do? They create privacy governance policies for their entire organizations that are all built to meet the GDPR. I believe exactly the same thing is going to happen with regards to sustainability, because the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive says that if you do business in Europe, you must report your global footprint. You know what else it says? You have to have over a certain revenue. Okay, but it's not that much. It's like 150 million euros, right? It's not really that much. And when you report, you don't have to report your European footprint. You have to report your global footprint. Wow. Here's the other thing. They don't care if you're a public company or a private company. Now, consider that. The International Sustainability Standards Board is giving advice to international securities exchange. That's only for companies that are publicly traded, right? So if you've got a publicly traded security, you got to line up. But before, if you were private, I mean, you have to obey laws. You didn't have to report those things. European Union says, oh, yes, you do. Public or private, doesn't matter. You're a corporation, you're doing business in Europe. Okay, 
Now, it gets one more step interesting because the CSRD, the European Union, invoked scope three. So it's not just scope one and scope two that will be required, it's scope three. And of course, I'm sure everyone on this podcast knows that scope one in Dow terminology, I would have said, is inside the fence line. Okay, so whatever we do, if it's our cars, our buildings, our machinery, that's our emissions we have to report. Scope two is utilities. Utilities that support our facilities, what are the emissions behind that? Scope three is what are the emissions in your supply chain and what are the emissions in your value chain and your distribution chain? So what that means is that any company that supplies a company doing business in Europe is going to be required to report their emissions in order to meet the company that they are serving, right? Global supply chain. It's just, whoa. Mike Wallace at Persephone has a great quote. I quote him all the time. It says, everybody is somebody's scope three. So you don't think it counts for you? Yes, it does. Yeah. Oh, yes, it does. And in five years, that's going to be fully integrated. And in five years, I think the ISSB is going to have informed reporting in multiple jurisdictions around the world. And I think they're going to add at least two more sustainability standards, one around biodiversity and one around water. That's what I think in five years. I think in five years, anybody who's not looking at integrating this is not going to be a viable consideration for investment. That's what I think. And so what I hope it drives is more sustainable business operations. And the world. (laughs) And world, yes. Well, it's been delightful to talk with you. More than delightful. Wonderful to talk to the two of you as well. Great conversation, Laura. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much. Keep up the doing. I do. I just, I love this. So, you know, be sure to send me the logo and any art type of thing so that I can, you know, send that out to our alumni, to our clients, post it on our social media channels. We'll look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This is just a reminder to follow Doing Sustainability wherever you get your podcast. And please leave a rating and review if you like the show. It helps others discover us. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to learn more about our agency, Baker, and how we can help you build your corporate brand, align your culture, and evolve your ESG reporting, head to bakerbrand.com. See you in the next episode of Doing Sustainability, where we focus on practical and actionable approaches to sustainability to create long-term value.